invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, you'll find our passage on page 943. Page 943. So Romans chapter 6. And uh, as you turn there, I'm going to read for us uh, verses 1 through 23. So I'll read the chapter in its entirety. And then this morning we will focus on verses 20 to 23. So Romans chapter 6, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word, and Father, we are reminded that you delight in the one who trembles at your word. And so, Father, we come before your word now with a sense of awe and reverence. 
And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us in these moments by the power of your spirit as we look to your word. We thank you, Father, that this word is sharper than any double-edged sword. And Lord, we do pray that it would pierce our hearts and that it would bring healing and life even as it wounds. So Lord, take now your word and we pray that you would give us understanding, give us wisdom, give us insight and change us for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, we are currently in a series in which we are considering the theme of living the gospel. And uh, we are Lord willing, going to conclude our series in chapter 6 this morning. The larger series is Romans chapter 6 through 8, but we've been working through chapter 6, and Lord willing, we will finish the chapter this morning. And last week we saw in the latter part of Romans chapter 6 that Paul begins to use this metaphor of slavery to describe humanity's spiritual condition. Either all of us are either slaves to sin, or we are slaves to to God. And so we saw that last week in our text. And this idea, we noted, did not originate with the Apostle Paul. In fact, Jesus spoke this way. And Paul here is simply taking that idea and he's developing it. He's elaborating upon it. Now, as we've been thinking about this concept, this metaphor of slavery in terms of our spiritual condition, in particular as Christians, our slavery to God. Some of you just shared with me in conversations that it is difficult for you sometimes to think of your relationship with God in terms of slavery. And I can understand that. I sympathize with that. So I want to say a few things up front this morning about our slavery to God. And then we will return to this theme several times as we walk through our passage this morning. First of all, I want to say that I believe one of the reasons we have difficulty with this metaphor is because when we think of slavery, we immediately think of the slavery that was practiced in the southern United States prior to the Civil War. So slaves were forcibly removed from their homeland. They were identified as slaves uh, based on the color of their skin. Uh, They were sold oftentimes like cattle, and sentenced to a lifetime of slavery, not only them, but also their descendants. So there was no end in sight. Now, I am sure that much of the slavery in the Roman Empire was just as wicked and evil. However, at the same time, some of the slavery in the first century was voluntary, and it was limited in its duration. So, for example, if someone had large debts to pay that they were unable to pay. They could voluntarily enlist themselves in a situation in which they would be serving as a slave and they would function as a slave until they were able to earn the money they needed to pay off that debt and then they would be free. So all of the slavery in Rome in the first century did not exactly reflect the type of slavery of which we are most familiar. So that's one point. But the second point is, and this is the more important point, is that our relationship with the Lord, we see this in Scripture, our relationship with the Lord is multifaceted. So, for example, Jesus refers to his disciples as his friends. That means he refers to us 
through faith in Christ. He refers to us as his friends. Or, God declares that through Christ, he is our father, and we are his sons and his daughters. So, the relationship that we have with the Lord is spoken of in these types of familial terms. At the same time, so we have friend, we have father. At the same time, Paul identifies himself as a slave of God. So even in this letter, uh, the letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome, he begins the letter in Romans chapter 1 verse 1 by saying, Paul, and then he identifies himself, a servant, a doulos. It's the same word that's used here in Romans 6 that's translated slave. A servant, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So, and, and we could point to any number of passages where Paul identifies himself in this way. That he is a slave, he is a servant to the Lord. And here's the thing. So, so we have father, we have friend, we have master and we relate to him as a slave or a servant. And here's the thing. Paul also says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we could say to the Apostle Paul, okay, Paul, then what is it? Is it a son or it is a slave? I think Paul would say, it's both. It's multifaceted. In some ways, we relate to God as a son, as a daughter. In other ways, we relate to him as a slave, as a servant. So we relate to God as our father. He loves us. He cares for us. He will show us compassion as a father shows compassion to his children. And in particular, what Paul is getting at in Galatians chapter 4 is that God will relate to us as a father in the sense that he will grant us an inheritance as a father will willingly and joyfully at the proper time grant an inheritance to their children. And Paul says he's going to grant you this inheritance because you're a son. You see, slaves don't have access to the inheritance. They aren't heirs to the inheritance. But you're a son, so you're going to receive the inheritance of your father. So we relate to God as a son. On the other hand, there are ways in which we relate to God as a slave. Yes, He is our Father, but He is also our Master and our Lord. And that means that our lives now are characterized by His agenda and not ours. By His way and not mine. By His will and not mine. He sets the course of my life. He gives the orders. I don't. He commands and I listen. He directs and I obey. This is not a nine to five job or a part-time gig. It's 24-7. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and he is my master and he is my Lord. So our relationship with the Lord is multifaceted. We relate to him as a father and we're sons and daughters. We relate to him as the Lord, as master. We're slaves and servants. And just as he is a good father, he is also a good master. And I believe this will become even more clear as we work through our text this morning. So let's just say a word here about the context in which we find our verses. 
So in chapter 6, verse 19, which we looked at last week, Paul commands the Christians in Rome to present themselves as slaves to righteousness or slaves to God. And now we come to verses 20 to 23, and Paul here explains why they should do so. So in verses 20 to 23, he's explaining to them why they should give themselves to being slaves to God. And there are many reasons, but here in these verses in particular, Paul contrasts the outcome of a life lived in slavery to sin with a life lived in servitude to God. And so he contrasts those two outcomes. And he says, as a result of these two outcomes, here's the outcome if you live a life enslaved to sin. Here's the outcome if you live a life enslaved to God. Therefore, present yourselves as slaves to God. Now, Paul will explain these two divergent outcomes by describing the Christian life to us in three stages. And he describes the Christian life in temporal terms here. That is in terms of time. And here's the three stages. Then, now, and why. And that's our outline for this morning. Then, which we find in verses 20 to 21. Now, which we find in verse 22. And why, which we find in verse 23. So first of all, let's consider then. Look there in verses 21, or I'm sorry, 20 and 21. Paul writes, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So notice there the first thing that Paul says in verse 20 is, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free. In regard to righteousness. Now, up to this point, Paul has spoken of our relationship to sin before Christ as a relationship of bondage and slavery. So we see this all through chapter 6. So in chapter 6, verse 6, he says we were enslaved to sin. In chapter 6, verse 12, he says that sin desires to reign over us. In chapter 6, verse 13, he says that sin leads to death. In verse 14, he says that sin wants to dominate us. In verse 17, he says we were slaves of sin. In verse 19, he says we were slaves of impurity and lawlessness. So our relationship to sin before Christ was a relationship of bondage, oppression, tyranny. That's how Paul has been describing our relationship to sin before Christ. Now in verse 20, Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free... In regard to righteousness. This is the only time in chapter 6 that Paul uses the word free to describe our condition when we were enslaved to sin. So, what does it mean? That, how, how can we be enslaved to sin at the same time? Free. Well, we were free in regards to righteousness. That is, righteousness had no claim on our minds, it had no grip on our hearts. At best, we were indifferent to righteousness, and at worst, we were absolutely opposed to it. Hostile towards it. We, we surely weren't committed to righteousness at all cost. In this sense, it was not the compass. It was not the guiding principle of our lives. And of course, as Paul has been explaining to us in Romans chapter 6, this is not freedom at all. 
to be free in regards to righteousness is bondage. Paul is telling us here, he's teaching us here, that there is a freedom that is in reality slavery. Now, he makes this statement in verse 20, and then notice in verse 21, in the ESV, it begins with the word but, which can also be translated here, so or therefore. The sense is, given this condition that you were enslaved to sin and free to righteousness, given this previous condition, consider this. Therefore, consider this. And then he poses this question. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Now, so the first thing that we received when we were the fruit of what we received when we were slaves to sin and free in regards to righteousness was shame. Those things of which you are now ashamed. And we all know this experience, especially those who have never yielded their lives to the Lordship of Christ. But at times it is true of Christians as well. At times Christians give way to sin in ways in which they are later ashamed. So we all know what it is to be slaves of sin and free in regard to righteousness and as a result to experience the shame of that sin. This slavery and that freedom manifest itself in many ways. It may be a deep disregard for authority, perhaps even especially our parents, of which we are now ashamed. Some of you might look back on ways in which you related to your parents, the way you spoke to them. You might think to yourself, if someone now could hear the way that I spoke to my parents, the way I related to my parents, I'd be so embarrassed. Or maybe it's a lifestyle of partying and drunkenness and overindulgence. In the moment you were the life of the party, your friends celebrated your reckless living. But perhaps now when you look back on those times, you look back on them with regret and you think to yourself how much time was wasted, time that could have been used growing in Christ, time that could have been used investing in others, time that could have been used pointing to others to Christ and to the gospel. You're ashamed. Maybe it's addiction to alcohol or to drugs or something else. You wish you could get those years back. And now you realize that the temporary buzzes or highs that you received are never worth what you lost. Maybe it was sexual immorality or an immoral relationship. Perhaps it was a life that was characterized by a carelessness that resulted in one empty sexual encounter after another. Maybe it was bondage or enslavement to pornography. You think to yourself, if others could just see what I thought or what I did, I'd be mortified. And listen, the good news of the gospel is that Christ came to clothe us with his righteousness so that he might cover our nakedness and our shame. But the fact remains, sin promises 
freedom and glory. And sin results in bondage and shame. And not only does sin result in shame, but notice that Paul says here, ultimately sin results in death. Paul goes on to say in the text, for the end of those things is death. And listen, this is so important for us to understand. You can't get around this. You can't. You may wish to live in a different world. You may wish to live in a different universe in which this is not true, but it does not change the moral reality of the world in which we live. There is a moral fixedness to our universe, and this moral certainty is actually a serious problem for those who claim to be atheists and agnostics. They can't account for it. Why is it that certain actions and moral choices lead to certain consequences, whether good or bad? You see, we cannot escape the moral code of this universe. And the reason is because there's an eternal God who created this universe and he wrote his moral DNA into the universe. And you can't escape it. You can wish it away, but you cannot change it. It is fixed. It is certain. And one of the principles of that moral code is that sin finally leads to death. And we witness this all around us every single day. It leads to moral death. The more sin is indulged, the more callous and the more hardened our consciences become. It leads to relational death. Sin divides friends and destroys families. It leads to emotional death. Sin will reward you with an emotional high and it will leave you with anxiety and despair and depression. Sin leads to physical death. It is part of living in a cursed world that we all die. And no amount of medicine or science or AI or chat GPT can save us from death. We will all die. Ultimately, sin leads to, and this is what Paul is ultimately referring to here, eternal death. Sin ultimately leads to the banishment of sin of sinners from the presence, the life-giving presence of God forever. And so what Paul is describing here is in fact what he was speaking of in Romans chapter 6 verse 19. Look there in verse 619. He says, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. In other words, what Paul is referring here to is the downward spiral of sin. And here's the downward spiral of sin. It leads to impurity which leads to lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness, which leads to shame, which leads to death. 
It's in fact what the Apostle Paul opens Romans with in Romans chapter 1 when he speaks of humanity as a whole rejecting God and rebelling against God. And three times he says, God gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over to their wickedness. It's the downward spiral of sin. I've said it many times before, and I'm sure I'll say it many times again. I heard this years ago, and it's always stuck with me. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. It is the downward spiral of sin. And so Paul begins here in our text by asking this question, what did you get from a life of slavery to sin and freedom to righteousness? You got shame and death. Now remember, this is a section in which Paul is admonishing us to say no to sin and to grow in Christ likeness to grow in holiness. Now, why would we want to do that? There are many reasons why we should do that, but one reason that Paul highlights here is because we know something of the deceptiveness and hideousness of sin. And we all know it. We've been there. We've done that. We've tasted the bitterness of it. And we don't ever want to go back. And so Paul says sometimes we need to remind ourselves of then so that by the grace of God we will never go back there again. And as we remember then, we are reminded that sin is a terrible, terrible master. The second stage in the Christian's life. So that's then. The second stage is now. Look there in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now those words there in verse 22, the first two words, beautiful words, but now. In other words, Paul is indicating here that something transformative, something dramatic, something definitive has happened in our lives, and we will never be the same. Now, we are different. And the difference that is, this, this difference is the key to a life of holiness and sanctification. We could refer to it as the difference of but now. We've been tracing this theme all through Romans chapter 6 as we've been walking through the passage. But now that we're approaching the end of the chapter, let's remind ourselves of it again. We can just survey the chapter quickly. In verse 2, we see that we died to sin. In verse 3, we see that we've been baptized into Christ Jesus and we were baptized into his death. In verse 4, we were buried with him by baptism in the death so that we might walk in newness of life. In verse 6, we see that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In verse 7, we see that we've been set free from sin. In verse 11, we say that, see that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In verse 14, we see that sin will no longer have dominion over us because we're not under law, but we're under grace. 
In verse 17, we see that we've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we were committed. We see that we've been set free from sin and we've become slaves of righteousness. And in verse 22 that we're looking at this morning, we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. This is the but now difference. This was true of you then, but now this is who you are. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Christian pastor, comments on this text and says, quote, Sin in the Christian life is no longer our master. It is just a nuisance. And what a glorious difference. End of quote. And it may not always seem like it's just a nuisance. It may seem like sometimes it's got you by your throat. But if you're in Christ, it's a lie. The bondage has been broken. And part of breaking that bondage in your life is to believe the reality of who you are now in Christ. So notice the outcome of a life of slavery to God. What was the outcome of a life of slavery to sin? Shame and death. The outcome of a life of slavery to God, verse 22, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So do you see the contrast? A life of slavery to sin leads to shame. A life of slavery to God leads to sanctification, to holiness, to being set apart for God, for His purposes and for His glory. Could there be any greater contrast? Further, the contrast is that a life of slavery to sin leads to death. And what does a life of slavery to God lead to? Eternal life. So servitude to this God is altogether different than that of slavery to sin. And we know this in part because the outcome of slavery to one is dramatically different than the outcome of slavery to the other. So we saw before in verse 20, that there is a freedom that is in fact slavery. You think you're free, but you're you're enslaved. You're in bondage. And now we see that there is a slavery that is freedom. There is a slavery that is freedom. A freedom to know God and to serve God and to be sanctified and to experience eternal life. And listen, my friends, understand what Paul is saying here. And this is, this is one of the things I hope that we get from Romans chapter 6. Paul is saying to us as Christians, this is possible. It doesn't mean that it will be easy. It doesn't mean that it will be perfect. But it can be real and noticeable and sustainable and everlasting. And some of you need to hear this because you feel so defeated by sin. So defeated in your struggle with sin. And Paul is saying to us here, sanctification is not a carrot that God holds out there in front of us, but we can never actually grasp it. He's not just teasing us. Growing in Christ's likeness, maturing in holiness is not unattainable. Christ died and he was raised in order to make you holy and to conform you to his image. To set you free and to enable you to walk in newness of life. And this means, my friends, that as Christians, we can please God. 
as Christians justified by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit and abiding in His Word and depending upon Him in prayer, we can please God by making real progress in our Christian lives. When we have our members' meetings, I oftentimes will give away several books for free. And one of the books that I plan to give in our upcoming members' meeting, one of the books I plan to give away is a book written by Kevin DeYoung. And the title is A Hole in Our Holiness. And it's a little book on sanctification. And chapter 5 in that book is one of the most encouraging things I've ever read on sanctification. Chapter 5 is entitled, The Pleasure of God and the possibility of godliness. The pleasure of God and the possibility of godliness. And one of the things that DeYoung is trying to show in that passage is that as Christians who are in Christ, we can, by the grace of God, live in such a way that pleases God. It's not perfection, but it is a life that is marked by good works that please God. And and so one of the things he does in that chapter is he just goes through and shows any number of verses in the New Testament where we see that this is the case. And I don't have time to highlight all of them, but I just want to point out a few to you this morning. So for example, Colossians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul prays this for the church in Colossae. He prays that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul is praying that for the church in Colossae because he believes it's a possibility for them to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, for them to interact with one another as a church in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Or Romans chapter 12, which we're studying Romans now. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul goes on to say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, So, Lord, I'm yours. I'm I'm a sacrifice for your glory. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, or holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or listen to this. Children, listen to this verse. Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. (laughs) amen children if you want to please the Lord you can look to Christ in faith trust him as your savior and depend upon him to give you grace to walk in faithful obedience to your parents that pleases the Lord 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So Paul speaks of his own ministry as one in which he is seeking to please the Lord. Now some of us don't think of our ministry in that way. We might think, oh, I try to do things to serve God and I serve in this way and that way, but I'm a miserable sinner and everything I do is sinful and I know he's not ever pleased with anything I do. And that may sound really spiritual. That's not the way the Apostle Paul speaks of his own ministry. He's been washed with the blood of Christ. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He's died to sin and he's been raised with Christ. And he seeks by the power of the Holy Spirit to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And God delights in his ministry. Is it perfect? No. But God is pleased with it. 
Or 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, that is the children or the grandchildren, first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So if you have aging parents, or if you have parents who's a widow or a widower, widower, however you say that, and you love them, and you care for them, and you provide for them, Paul says that's pleasing to the Lord. Or Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So when you're generous and you give to others in need, that pleases the Lord. As a church, we just recently gave, I believe it was over $50,000 to our Lottie Moon Christmas offering and also to... Uh, Wycliffe Bible translators to support missionaries from our own church. If you gave to that offering and you gave sacrificially, that was pleasing to the Lord. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is saying here? God is not a cranky, unreasonable master who is impossible to please. He doesn't whip us at every turn just because he gets joy in it. God saved us to make us holy in Christ, to sanctify us and grant us eternal life. In other words, God saved us so that we might please Him and so that He might delight in all He intends for us to be and to become in Jesus. That is the now of our lives. We have been saved. We have been redeemed. We have been made slaves to God so that we might please Him as we walk in righteousness on our way to eternal life. Now, third and finally, why? Look there in verse 23. Verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if we're looking at The stages of the Christian life, in particular, then and the now. We might ask ourselves, okay, why? Why the then and the now? Why does the Christian's life play itself out like this? And Paul tells us in verse 23, for, that's the first word in verse 23, or because, so here's the reason why. Here's the reason why the Christian life plays itself out this way. Because of this fundamental underlying principle or truth, namely the truth of the gospel. And that's what we find in verse 23. It's the gospel in a nutshell. You see there in verse 21, we already saw that being a slave to sin leads to shame and death. But now in verse 23, Paul reiterates this truth because he begins verse 23 by saying, For the wages of sin is death. And that word there, wages, is uh, ophonia, which is uh, in the original language. It often refers to a payment that is made to a soldier. So a soldier puts in his hours. He does his duties. He gets a payment for what he's done, for what he's earned. And a person who lives a life of slavery, he's enslaved to sin, and he puts in his hours, and he obeys his master, and sin pays him what he earns, what he deserves. Namely, death. 
and eternal judgment. Now, at this point, we would expect then Paul to say, for the wages of sin is death. But the wages of righteousness or the wages of God is eternal life. See, the idea is you work for sin and sin rewards you with what you deserve, death. And you work for righteousness, you work for God, and God will reward you with what you deserve, with what you've earned, eternal life. And in some ways, the immediate context might reinforce this expectation. Notice, in verse 19, Paul says, Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And then in verse 22, we see that slaves of God, the fruit that they get is that it leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So there is a sense, and we, sh- we need to note this, there is a sense in which righteousness results in sanctification and sanctification results in eternal life. That's what Paul says here in the text. But righteousness and sanctification only lead to eternal life as evidence of our salvation, not as the cause of our salvation. Righteousness and sanctification in this sense are the fruit of our salvation, but not the root of our salvation. The cause and the root of our salvation is grace. And so just when we expect the Apostle Paul reading through these verses and tracing the argument, just when we expect him to say the wages of righteousness, the wages of God is eternal life, Paul shifts the focus to remind us of what is primary, of what is fundamental. But the free gift of God, the grace of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Do you see the contrast here? Sin pays us what we deserve. But God freely gives us what we don't deserve and what we could never earn on our own. So grace is the root, it is the cause of our salvation, and then righteousness and sanctification is the evidence of our salvation. And then our faith in Christ, evidenced by our fruit, results in eternal life. And how do we receive this grace? How do we receive this free gift? Well, notice there in the text we read, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, All through Romans chapter 6, we've been talking about union with Christ, right? It's one of the major themes of Romans chapter 6, and there it is. In Christ Jesus our Lord. We must be in Christ through faith. In high school and college, I worked at a local dry cleaners here. And uh, I worked with a number of employees and had the opportunity over several years to speak to many of them about the Lord And there was one young woman that worked at the dry cleaners, and um, I will say this as tastefully as I can. Um, In the evenings, she danced at what we will call a local nightclub to make extra money. And uh, it was not ballroom dancing. Um, One night I was working with her and a couple of other employees, and we were tagging clothes that were going to later be cleaned, and 
um, had the opportunity to start to talk to her about the Lord. And I, at some point, began to ask her you know, a question like, do you know what it means to be a Christian? Or do you know what the story of the Bible is? Or do you know how you uh, can know that you'll have eternal life? And as we started that conversation, I went on to explain to her what it means to be a Christian, explain to her the gospel by using the bridge diagram. Now, are any of you familiar with the bridge diagram? Many of you have probably been taught this before in church. So the bridge diagram is a way to share the gospel, the good news of Christ with someone, and it's based on Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And basically what you do is you take a sheet of paper, a napkin, or whatever you got, you write out Romans chapter 6, verse 23 at the top, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then on one side of the piece of paper, you draw a stick man. And then on the other side, you write God. And you draw like a little cliff that each one's standing on. And then there's this big gap or chasm in the middle. And then you just start walking through the verse. And this is what I did with her. For the wages, and you circle wages. You know, you write it down on the sheet of paper under the stick man. You circle wages. You say, what is a wage? Well, a wage is something that you earn. That's right. You know, you work here at the cleaners, you put your hours in, and they pay you for the hours that you worked. Okay, so let's look at the next word. For the wages of sin. What is sin? And you write down sin and you circle sin. Well, sin is if you, if you disobey God, if you break his commandments. That's exactly right. You write down wages, write down sin. Then you read further. For the wages of sin is death. You write down death and you circle death. What is death? Well, we all die. That's right. We do all die. And we die, the Bible tells us, because of sin. And ultimately... If we don't know God, if we don't experience His forgiveness, we will all experience eternal death in a place called hell, separated from God forever. So that's the bad news. But then notice, there's good news in this verse as well. And then you go to the other side where you've written God and there's a cliff there and you keep reading the verse. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. And you write down free and start, what is free? Well, free means you don't have to pay for it. You're just giving something free. That's right. And gift, what is a gift? Well, gift is something that someone gives you, and you don't have to earn it. And oftentimes it's given to you in love. And the free gift, this verse says, that God wants to give us is, and you keep reading the verse, eternal life, and you write down eternal life. What is eternal life? Well, the Bible tells us that eternal life is life in the presence of God forever. And you see, the problem is that we have man on this side, And the wages of his sin is death, eternal death, separated from God forever. But on this side, you have God. And he wants to give us this free gift, the free gift of eternal life. But how are we going to cross this chasm? How are we going to receive that gift? And you can write little lines, you know, kind of partway going across. People try to build bridges across by doing good works, but they always come up short. God wants to give us a free gift, so how can we receive this free gift? And then you keep reading the verse, in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I start drawing in that you know, diagram, you got man on this side, God on this side, big chasm in the middle, start drawing a cross in between and write Jesus on the cross. And I'm telling you, as I did that, eyes got big. This young woman, never been to church, knew little to nothing about the Bible, Eyes got big, and I don't know exactly what happened in that moment. I wish I could say that she repented of her sins and trusted in Christ. She didn't. She actually quickly diverted attention and kind of moved on to something else. But in that moment, I could sense that she understood, perhaps for the first time, why Jesus died on the cross. 
And my sense was that in that moment, even short-lived as though it may be, she sensed for the first time something of the goodness of God. If God did that, he must be good. And perhaps I could serve him. You can pray for her. I haven't seen her in probably 25 years or more. You can pray that she would receive that free gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, the reason why I believe that so many of us have a hard time imagining that it could be a good thing for God to be our master is because we have known so many masters who take advantage of their servants for their own advantage. To advance themselves. But what we see in our text this morning and what we see throughout all of Scripture is that Jesus is an altogether different master. This is beautifully illustrated in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, we're told that Jesus is with his disciples. And John records Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and he was going back to the Father. I mean, that is some description of who Jesus is. In this moment, Jesus has a full awareness that he's come from God, that he's going back to God, and God is going to give him everything. And what would we expect to read next? And so Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Get off your duff and build me a mansion. Here's a credit card. Go buy me a new wardrobe. Go wash my car. That's not what we read, is it? We read, he rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. This is an altogether different master. And this is just the beginning. Because ultimately, we know that Jesus would bear the cross for their redemption. You see, my friends, Jesus is a master who doesn't work his slaves to death to get what he desires. Jesus is a master who dies to do a work his servants could never do to fulfill their greatest need and desires. Jesus is unlike any other master. Jesus is an altogether good master. And one of the ways we know, this is one of the ways we know that God is a good master. He doesn't pay us what we deserve. Rather, he gifts us what we could never earn or deserve on our own. The free gift of God is eternal life. But notice, and this is important for us to notice, especially coming to the end of Romans chapter 6, notice he is our master. In this extended section in which Paul is speaking about the spiritual condition of humanity. Either we're slaves to sin or we are slaves to God. Paul ends the section by identifying Jesus Christ as not our Savior, though He is, but as our Lord. The, the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, what? Our Lord, our Master. And this is the only way we can receive God's free gift of eternal life. By trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. And then by knowing Him. By bowing before Him. And serving Him as our Lord and our Master. Charles Spurgeon is a spiritual hero of mine. He was a pastor in London in the 19th century. And he died 
on January 31st, 1892. So the anniversary of his death was just this last week on Tuesday. And these are, I came across these words this last week, these are the last words that Spurgeon spoke in his pulpit before he died. And as I read these, I thought, that is a perfect ending to Romans chapter 6. So I'm going to read them, and these will be the last words of our sermon this morning. Quote, Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend on it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the livery, which is like armor, the suit of a servant, if you wear the livery, the special uniform of a servant, of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. He is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. Whenever the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you always find it in him. These 40 years and more I have served him, blessed be his name, and I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below, if it so pleased him. His service is life, peace, joy. Oh, that you would enter on it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus, even this day. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the great hope that you have given us in the gospel. And we thank you that although we had chosen to be slaves of sin and given ourselves to sin, and we had reaped for ourselves the consequences of shame and death, Lord, we thank you that in your great mercy you redeemed us and saved us that you called us to be your own, that you enlisted us into your service. And we praise you that you are a good and faithful and kind master. Father, help us as we have studied Romans 6 over these last several weeks. Help us to know the great work that you have done in our lives, to know who we are now in Christ. And we pray that we would live out of that reality and experience the freedom and the joy that is ours in Christ. I pray that even through this series, we would know greater progress in our sanctification, greater freedom from sin, and we would have a greater hope of the life that is ours to come. Lord, we commit these things into your hands now, and it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.